so are we all set to start? Okay, so um, I'm not gonna take credit for choosing this article. I chose it technically, but he found it, so. Thank you for an interesting article, because the one I was gonna do was kind of boring. Um, okay, so it's the process trial. Uh, the purpose of this trial uh, was to determine whether patients receiving EGDT or early goal-directed therapy have superior outcomes compared to those who don't receive it. So um, why did I choose this slash why did this topic even come up in the first place? So in 2001, um, an investigator Rivers and colleagues published a paper titled EGDT and the Treatment of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock. And um, what this paper did was it outlined a strict six-hour um, protocol, um, which is now kind of known as the resuscitation bundle, or the RB, but, so if I say that later, that's what that means. Um, and it's where a central venous catheter, CVC, is placed in the jugular and slid down uh, near the heart, and it's placed in every patient, and uh, strict goals were enforced to manage uh, patients with sepsis. sepsis. So most importantly, this was placed, and it, uh, it, a device was used to measure the SCVO2, or the central venous oxygen saturation. And so according to River, Rivers, the lead investigator, the point of this aggressive therapy was to ensure that there's enough oxygen in the blood for the tissues, because a key development preceding multi-organ failure and death in patients is hypoxia. So what this paper showed was that in-hospital mortality was significantly reduced in the group assigned to EGDT versus patients receiving standard therapy. Um, not only just significantly, but it was 30% um, mortality versus 45%. So it wasn't just, it was very large. Um, so once this study was published, the protocol was widely adopted. And then um, this new therapy with the device that me measures the SCDO2 costs about $100 more per patient. So um, they, people saw the mortality benefits and they thought, well, that's worth it. Um, and then in 2008, an, an article came out um, basically bashing the study. Um, and the main reason it was um, bashed is because Dr. Rivers modified the catheter that was made by Edwards Life Sciences Corporation. And then he maintained patents for its design and use. Um, and this catheter was the one that measured the SCVO2. So then he transferred the um, patent rights to the hospital, which he uh, performed the study at. And that way, when the New England Journal of Medicine said, hey, do you have any financial ties to this? He could say, no, I don't. Um, however, both him and the hospital combined have received um, about 400 grand by 2008. So now I have no idea how much they've received. So that's why I chose this study, why it's interesting, and why it's such a big deal. So this study, the process trial, um, it's a multi-center, um, randomized, blinded, and tentative analysis of a roughly 1,300 patients. Um, it was funded by the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and they did use the same equipment, but they had no other role in the study, so there was no financial ties in this one. Um, inclusion criteria, uh, the only thing I wanted to highlight there was uh, refractory hypotension. Um, I just wanted to clarify that that is that when it's having have being hypotensive um, after fluid resuscitation or requiring vasopressors to achieve that to achieve a blood pressure of greater than 90. And the only thing I wanted to point out about the exclusion criteria was that um, 
basically it makes sense because anything listed there would have um, interfered with their protocol that they needed to um, perform to accomplish the study. Um, interventions, the people were broken up on a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one randomization. Um, so the protocol-based EGDT was identical to the protocol outlined in the river study. So that was that replication. Um, and every patient got the central venous catheter to measure the MAP and the SCVO2, um, unless they absolutely could not, and I believe there's only 6% of patients or something similar to that that didn't, couldn't get the CVC. Um, and they were on a strict protocol to administer IV fluids, vasopressors, dibutamine, and or packed red blood cell transfusions as directed. And then um, the protocol-based standard care was uh, similar in the sense that it was a six-hour resuscitation. However, it was much less aggressive, and they used a peripheral venous access instead of the central venous. Um, and just an example, uh, fluids were administered until the physician deemed replete versus a very strict protocol in the other one. And um, they only used packed red blood cells if the hemoglobin was less than 7.5 versus less than 10 in the, the EGDT protocol. And usual care, um, beds, bedside physicians chose what the care was. There was no protocol, and it wasn't a team of people. It was um, just one physician. Um, there were no significant differences in the populations between the groups. Uh, for outcomes, it was, you know, it was patient-oriented. Pa patients care about if they're going to die or not, um, not necessarily what their blood pressure is going to be throughout it. So primary outcomes were rate of in-hospital death uh, from any cause at 60 days, and the secondary outcomes were rate of death at 90 days and cumulative mortality at 90 days in a year. They did measure other outcomes, um, so duration of acute CV failure, acute respiratory failure, acute renal failure, um, duration of stay in the hospital or ICU, and hospital dis discharge disposition. Um, so they measured adherence to protocols as well, um, and they compared both of the protocol groups together as a whole to the usual care as well as everything separately to one another to see if there were any differences. And um, they did meet the total number of people that they had to enroll to achieve the power that they wanted to. So that was a plus as well. And most importantly, what their results showed was that there was no difference in the primary or secondary outcomes between the groups. The table that I highlighted on um, the handout, the, those were the only differences found. I only put the ones that were significantly different there. So the fluids, vasopressors, et cetera, et cetera, used were significantly different. The INRs were different. Um, there's, there was a significant difference in admission to ICU and new renal failure in the first week. But as you can see, um, the standard pro protocol had the most renal failure occurrence with the usual care being the least and the EGDT had the highest admission to the ICU. So besides that, all of the other outcomes were no significant difference between the groups. Um, when it comes to, for the limitations, so um, 
I mean, one thing I personally always look for when I read a paper is making sure that they actually list their own limitations because I, when I read a paper and they don't, it scares me that they think that there were none when there always is. So um, it's just something that I always like to mention in Journal Club. So the one of their limitations was poor adherence versus the Rivers trial. In the Rivers trial, they had almost perfect adherence. However, they did not specify in the Rivers trial how they measured adherence. So who knows if it really was perfect or even if it was accurate. Um, but they did point out that it was less adherent versus that trial. Um, in this trial, they only assess patients in the ED. So there's always that um, care before randomization, randomization factor, you know, what was happening to them, who was caring for them before they came to the ED. And then um, I mentioned this because it said it in the paper and I didn't want to leave it out, but I will be honest that I don't completely understand what they meant when they said this but they said there was limited power to analyze certain subgroups. So what I take from that is that when they measure other, like post, past, secondary outcomes essentially, um, they might not have had enough power to measure those um, because it did say subgroups. So what I take from that is that they powered enough to measure the primary and secondary outcomes, but any others, it might not have been powered adequately. Um, and then I just wanted to highlight some strengths of the trial as well which wasn't in the paper, but there was an editorial uh, published in the same issue of New England Journal of Medicine um, regarding the process trial. So what they said was that um, with the goal of the process trial being early recognition of sepsis, um, its design called for early administration of antibiotics, conservative transfusion thresholds, early adequate volume resuscitation, clinical assessment of adequacy of circulation, so measuring the blood pressure, the MAP, um, and it led to outcomes that portray the importance of these, of these factors. So specifically, 76% of the patients received antibiotics before they even underwent randomization. And then by the time um, the six-hour protocol period was finished, 97% of patients had received antibiotics. And this resulted in higher projected, projected rates of survival overall based on the patient's Apache 2 scores which is an estimation of um, ICU mortality. So not only did this study show that there was not, no um, difference in primary and secondary outcomes between the groups, but overall, all the groups received very early care and that resulted in much higher and better outcomes than they expected. So what this editorial highlighted was that, you know, not only does it point out the obvious, but we have to take from it um, what they've already highlighted in the surviving sepsis campaign, which is that early, earlier the better, do as much as you can as soon as possible, try to recognize it as soon as possible. Um, and the author of the editorial actually goes on to uh, recommend that state legislation and clinical guidelines um, should be updated to remove the requirement of central hemodynamic monitoring in order to focus on less costly, lower risk, and equally effective alternatives. Um, and then the last thing that I thought was really interesting from this editorial was that the author states that some people took away from this trial that protocols and prompts have no role in the treatment of septic shock, since you look at it and you think, oh, usual care, cool, we can kind of do whatever we want sort of thing. Um, but the author, Dr. Lilly, states that he would actually encourage, instead of taking away the prompting for serum lactate screening, assessment of SERS criteria, and the reporting of activities that were both part of both trials, so 
blood pressure, amount of fluids used, hemoglobin, hematocrit, that sort of thing. Um, it can and should be applied, but with just not as aggressive goals. And it's important to look at those things so we can diagnose sepsis as early as possible and provide that early treatment for all patients with septic shock. And then um, with the limitations and strengths of this trial, obviously, when we see a limitation, we're thinking, oh, maybe we should do another trial to measure this. Maybe we, you know, what's coming next? Um, so I usually just like to include other studies that are coming um, that might help us learn more about this huge area. Um, so I included one of them on your handout, um, which is the ARISE trial. And the data for that should be done um, at the end of this month. That's when it's projected to be done. So hopefully we'll be seeing um, that within the next couple of years. As well as there's a UK study currently going on which call, is uh, called Protocolized Management in Sepsis. So both of those will be coming out hopefully within the next you know, five years, however long it takes for all that to happen. And besides that, that was, those are the most important things that I wanted to highlight during my presentation. Does anybody have questions? How long did it take for this study to be uh, completed? So uh, we were just talking about the, how long we're going to have to wait for the next one. Um, I think this one was five years. And then 31, 31 sites? Yeah, 31 sites. So that's how, how many patients per site per year did they enroll, I guess? Uh, nine. <coughs> Is, is what I come up with. So each hospital that for, was enrolled was only enrolling nine patients per per year. Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's one thing that I always look at to determine, you know, how feasible might be the study to replicate at my site. It was kind of surprising. I thought that they would easily get mm -hmm. a lot more patients per year than that. I don't. I didn't see that they commented on it. I read. I was reading how they did consent, and they even had provisions in there for. Um, emergency consent if the patient wasn't able to consent and the family couldn't be reached and whatnot. So, um, I don't know, that's one, that was one of the things that um, that was interesting to me. I've, I've heard also a second-hand account uh, of the Rivers trial, mm -hmm. that Rivers was actually at the bedside managing the EGDT for the patients in that group. So that, that plus that it was a single center might explain the near-perfect adherence um, there. Yeah. I mean, they were still, I think, about 90% adherent, roughly. Oh, yeah, they... Um, which, which is really good, I think. Yeah, it was above 90 in every group. It was just not near-perfect like it was yeah. in the Rivers trial. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that you were mentioning about Rivers being there, was they called, I because there were a whole bunch of limitations, I just pulled out that one because I you know, didn't want to talk for 20 minutes about a trial I'm not presenting, but um, it's called like the Rivers effect, where you have undivided attention of a critical care trained doctor in the intervention arm, which we know is like not at all how it is, so I thought, they, they named an effect after him, so right. it has to mean something, yeah. Um, what, what type of patients are, other than the inclusion exclusion criteria, I guess, what, what patients does this, do these results not apply to that, have, that still have sepsis? 
Um, so this, I would say it wouldn't apply to a patient who um, becomes septic in the ward. So, because it's, they only took patients who were admitted from the ED. And I think that was because they wanted as minimal intervention as possible beforehand, as well as um, they kind of want to compare it to the Rivers trial as much as possible. But um, yeah, it's, I would say it's not really applicable to patients who had been in the hospital and then became septic, which we know is a lot of patients who become septic. Right. So. And, or even, uh, I'm thinking also, um, patients who are recognized late, mm -hmm. uh, because all these patients were recognized early. Um, so I think it still leaves unanswered, like, how do you take care of a patient who we recognize late uh, in, in the course of sepsis? Um, as far as, like, the uh, exclusion criteria and the patients that you have seen come to the ICU with sepsis, does, does it look reasonable, or do you think a large amount of people are being excluded, or...? I think... I think that first box of the, oh wait, mine's different than yours. I think the first like paragraph of exclusion criteria um, greatly limits the realistic nature of the study because I feel like in that first um, paragraph in the exclusion criteria, a lot of the patients that I've seen with sepsis have these things. So when I'm looking at this, in my mind I was like, well, it makes sense because in these patients, you're gonna to have to do different things that's gonna limit them from completing the study. Yeah. However, I couldn't think of a patient I'd seen that didn't have one of these problems. So I was thinking maybe that's why it was so hard to get. Could be, yeah. I mean, I think they're fair exclusion criteria. Yeah. I don't think they're I think it's fair for the study, yeah. yeah. What type of uh, fluid care did they get before entering the study as far as like how many liters beforehand? Before entering? Yeah, before the, before randomization into one of the groups. Um, I believe they got, oh, they got, um, so they began with 20 to 30 mils per K because that's what they did mm -hmm. in the Rivers trial. Um, but then they later transitioned into giving them a liter instead. Or at least a liter. Yeah, yeah. at least a liter. Yeah. Um, but they did mention that when they looked later to see if it changed um, the outcome and if there was any difference with how much fluid was being administered, um, that the liter, like the minimum liter per patient rule ended up being 20, an average of 20 yeah. to 30 mils per, K per patient. And I think the average uh, total that they got before randomization was about two liters in each group. So basically, if you're looking at a patient and you're trying to decide, you know, relatively how, you know, are they getting a reasonable amount of fluids, you got to add two to all these numbers. So EGTDT would have been 4.8 liters of fluid in the first, mm -hmm. essentially, few hours. 5.3 for standard, 4.3 for usual. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why I agree with that editorialist um, that you still need a 
some protocol based, even if you're just saying I'm going to do peripheral IVs as long as that's adequate access, because um, the tendency in, I feel, in non-academic centers is to give a liter for your fluid resuscitation, you know, period, or two liters, period, rather than the four plus liters that everybody in each arm got. Or the, the management standpoint. So um, the two, I'm gonna answer your question, but it's gonna make more sense. Um, the two protocol groups were like trained teams of people. Right. Okay, and then the usual care, I, it wasn't a team. Right. It, and I don't think, you know, the, there was variability, I think, among. But what's the other thing that could have happened in the usual care group? Because what, how long has the surviving sepsis since at least 2004, I think. Which, yeah. kind of, this is what made me think about all this, to explain where I'm going, is they did an assessment of those physicians, but they didn't necessarily do a, how don't you manage them? <laughs> you know, like an assessment <laughs> of how you don't manage right, sepsis. Right. So when you talk about usual care and some Hawthorne effect, if you know that you're being scrutinized in some way of providing usual care, there could just be some confounding variables, meaning be doing some work on your own. It may not follow the exact protocols. You know you're being observed in a study, and even though there's pieces that you say, well, I agree that I'm not doing this, with how do you, I know you can't ignore, but how do you ignore the national discussion that's going on about how to surrender sepsis? And then my, and the reason why I say that, I mean, they were targeting, the initial mortality was 30, like their baseline, what they assumed is baseline mortality of 30 to 46 percent, mm -hmm. but yet every one of those groups was around 20 percent, which is significantly lower. So when they got antibiotics and they got, so maybe usual care has improved since before sepsis mortality did. Almost and that's one thing that said um, a, a, a lot of qualms that people had with the trial in 2001 was that its reported um, usual mortality rate was so high and they said that it like, you know, falsely made everything else look better. Right. Um, but an argument, I think it even says it, I can't remember what paper I was reading that it said it in, but it was that now we have so many extra rules and measures that, and things that we don't didn't know before that, you know, what is it? Is it those things or is it this protocol or lack of? Well, and also I think we've, in the study, you've selected out patients that were recognized early. So I bet you your mortality is low in part because of that. And then the only thing I saw in the supplement that addresses what you're saying is a lead investigator at the site could not participate in the usual care arm. So they could participate in either protocol-based arm um, but, but not in the mean, usual care. It doesn't mean that the other docs didn't also know. Yeah. 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 Well, they're not an official team. I mean, they're usually partners of some mm -hmm. sort. And I, 
it's hard. I mean, we talk within our own department, so how can I believe that there's not some discussion on how you're going to manage that Which is not a bad thing for this, but it does make, so we know that fluid resuscitation is good and maybe central lines don't have to go on everybody, so. They did, I mean, in this trial, they also did mention that they weeded out the most severe patients in each group, the top third, and then assessed them. I don't know if that really means anything. Maybe that's what they were talking about when they said, like, the subgroups they analyzed weren't powered enough. But they, they did do that. I don't know if it necessarily means anything if they also say that it wasn't powered enough, so... Any other questions or comments? So what are we gonna do, Joe? Yeah. Um, I would like to do the protocolized standard care. Is <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I would prefer. I mean, I I mean we our hospital is similar in terms of ED visits, um, but uh, not in terms of the academic center nature of uh, of everything. So. Um, I, I, I think that people need prompting for um, uh, for f the at least the amount of fluid that their patients receive, uh, and it would still be nice to prompt the order of vasopressors and uh, and whatnot. And I think you know I, I have not seen dobutamine on many patients with sepsis at all or blood transfusions, but it doesn't look like they're as necessary as in the EGT group. I just don't yeah and. Um, kind of like what you were saying, like I don't understand if the usual care was implemented in a hospital with people not watching them. How would they, if, how would a physician not, you know, I don't know, forget to do something and then if there's no prompt for a nurse to be like, oh, you have to do this, what's going to happen if no one's watching them in a study? Like that would just scare me, despite the numbers that I'm seeing in front of me. <laughs> and I think we should probably make sure we're focusing efforts on to early detection. why the standard would be significantly higher. They didn't get that much more fluid based on what or they weren't dry. Well, they got more fluid, but wouldn't that, I don't know, maybe I have a poor understanding. Yeah, exactly. It, it depends when you're giving the fluid. So if you're giving that fluid in these first six hours, then um, then you're, you're okay. You shouldn't be putting the patient at increased risks of, of renal failure. You should be preventing renal failure. But if you continue to give these patients lots of fluid after the initial resuscitation, then you can induce renal failure um, uh, from that. Uh, the mechanism. I don't remember. Um, the guy who wants to do, you to do a research study with him uh, did a grand rounds presentation. Doctor <laughs> um, <laughs> Soto. Um, um. He, he did do a grand rounds presentation. I think where he was kind of explaining how, the hows and whys of of continued fluid administration to the point of overload mm -hmm. um, being detrimental for, for kidneys. But, yeah. I'm intrigued 